<laughs> Good morning. Hey, this past week, a baby boy was born in Eureka, Kansas. Now, Eureka, Kansas is a town of 2,332 people. It's 1,100 miles from here. And uh, in size and makeup, it's a lot like uh, the town of Bethlehem was in Jesus' day. Uh, But I would guess that most of us here this morning have never set foot in Eureka, Kansas. Now, some of you may be from Kansas, and if so, you may have gone there. But if I suggested to you today that all of us should go there this next week, right? And uh, and we should celebrate his birth, and we should bring him gifts, and, and that we should make the trip by Camelback. How many of us would sign up for that kind of trip, right? Christmas season. I think uh, it would be a minor miracle if any of us went to visit this baby boy in Eureka, Kansas. And the truth is that the vast majority of us, uh, if not all of us, uh, just wouldn't make the necessary sacrifices that would be required to make a trip of this nature, of this distance and this expense. We, we just wouldn't do it unless, unless we had the right motivation to do so. That same question was posed to a group of men. You find their story in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do. Would you open them to Matthew chapter 2? And we're going to read about a group of guys called wise men or magi who were given this same choice to travel 1,100 miles to visit a child they had never heard of before and to offer him gifts for his birthday. You notice in Matthew chapter 2, it begins with this uh, statement. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. I want to pause for just a second and, and point out just how amazing this statement is. Sometimes when we see the Christmas story, whether it's with uh, Charlie Brown and the Christmas story, or you know, we reenact it on a Christmas morning, we blow through this early statement. But I want you to notice, first of all, that uh, these men are from the east. So this is ancient Iraq or Iran. So amazing to me that God reaches over to those nations which today are so opposed to Israel, and, and he picks out these guys who are 1,100 miles away, uh, and they're going to visit this obscure village close to Jerusalem called Bethlehem. And they're not family relations. They're not even friends of the family. They don't have a GPS a directions like Nancy was talking to us They all had busy careers, they had families, they had the delightful comforts of home there in Babylon. I mean, why make a trip like this, especially by camelback, which would take them 8 to 11 months of being over the desert, crossing the desert, and spending a lot of hard-earned cash to get there. So you can see how they're presented with this journey, And, and the big question to me, what makes me so curious is, why would they make the journey? What was their motivation? Why go to all of this time and trouble to make a trip to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, far across a desert? Well, Matthew gives us the startling answer in verse 2. So if you look at your Bibles, we'll put it on the screen. They come to Jerusalem and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come. Now pause there. Because they give us the answer to their motivation in the next three words. We have come to worship him. They came this entire distance to worship this baby born in Bethlehem. 
So as we look at this story this morning, there are three things I think the Magi would want us to get about worshiping Jesus. And the very first one is they teach us that Jesus is worthy of our worship because his rule will be global and eternal. So this is not just some kid born in a poverty-stricken part of Judea. He is actually much, much more than that. So the Magi learn about this child. They're living in the East. It's interesting the term Magi is an acronym. It comes out of the Persian language, and it means powerful ones. So when you think of the Magi in your home nativity, look at them as the powerful ones, the ones who are great and mighty. In fact, we use this word, the prefix mag. Uh, If you're a guy, you've got probably a mag light from the past. Or if you know the word magnify or magnificent. They all come from this root idea of rich in wisdom, opulent in lifestyle, wise counselors and advisors to the ancient kings of the East. So these guys are truly in a class all of their own. Uh, I think we may have a picture. Or already made, Did the picture of the Magi already go up? There we go. This is one of the puzzles we have in our home. We do it every Christmas. But look at the opulence. Look at the richness, the stature that these men had. The Greek historian Herodotus, who lived about 500 years before Jesus' birth, uh, said that these guys came from the tribe of the Medes, if you've heard of the Medes and the Persians. And it was a clan famous for the study of the stars and the ability to predict the future. So as the Magi looked at the stars and they saw their movement in the heavens, they were able to anticipate with fairly good regularity uh, what was happening in human history. They were often right on the money. And so they were relied on for their wisdom. They had actually taken the heavens, the skies, and divided them into quadrants for every nation that they knew of. And they even had a quadrant for Judea in the sky chart that they had. And as things changed in the heavens, so you had passing comets or meteors or or planets aligning, or you had uh, dying stars, they would look at that, find the quadrant, and begin to anticipate what was happening in that nation at that time. And in fact, in Matthew here, you notice they see a brilliant light. They call it a star, and it caught their attention, and there were five things about it. They noticed that there was a a brilliance in the heavens that signified a royal birth. I'll tell you about that in just a second. This brilliant light had a connection with the Jewish nation. Uh, It was in the quadrant of Judea. The light appeared at a precise time. It was enduring over time, and it was moving away from them toward Jerusalem. And so they looked at these things and they said, gosh, what could it be? We know today because of planetariums, if you've ever gone to one, that you can move the stars back in time very uh, reliably. And we know that at that time, the planet Jupiter, which is 11 times the size of Earth, called the King Planet, was actually active in the night skies of Jerusalem at 3 or 2 BC. And it began um, as a display of light that we call today a conjunction, all right? So that's a close visual association of that planet with something else. And it became associated with the star called Regulus, which was the king star. And and so the planet of the kings meets the the star of kings, and then Jupiter went into this thing called retrograde. Anybody ever heard of uh, the celestial retrograde? Okay, I didn't expect any of you to do that. That's why I brought this quote this morning. If you go to www.bethlehemstar.com, they describe what it means, and we'll put that on the screen for you here. Jupiter and the other planets periodically exhibit another strange motion. 
as they appear to reverse course and move backward through the uh, star fields. It's called retrograde. This may appear odd, but the reason is simple enough. We watch the planets from a moving platform, Earth, that is hurtling around the sun in its own orbit. So that, for instance, when you pass a car on the freeway, it appears to go backward as it drops behind as you move forward. Well, in the same, reason, in the same way, when the Earth is in its orbit, it swings past another planet that appears to move backward against the starry field, and astronomers call this optical effect retrograde motion. So it looks like it's moving along, and then suddenly it just backs up because of the position of us to it and to the sun. goes on to say, in the years leading up to Jesus' birth, 3 B.C. and 2, Jupiter's retrograde wandering would have called for our Magi's full attention. After Jupiter and Regulus had their first kingly encounter, so Jupiter backs it up, Jupiter continued on its path through the star field. But then it entered retrograde. It changed its mind and headed back to Regulus for a second conjunction. After this second pass, it reversed course again for a third rendezvous with Regulus, a triple conjunction in the starry sky. A triple pass like this was more rare, they write. Over a period of months, our watching magi would have seen the planet of kings dance out a halo above the star of kings, a coronation ceremony in the sky. So here's the Magi looking at their stars, and they see Jupiter moving along, and then it goes back. It's circling over Regulus, the star king. It moves on. No, wait, it comes back. It does it again. It goes on. Oh, wait, it comes back one third time. And it's giving this coronation effect to Regulus. That should catch anybody's attention. So Jupiter's interesting behavior caught their attention, And they're thinking of something royal, some coronation, and it's in the quadrant of Judah. But there was more than that. That alone, I don't think, would have sent them off into the desert night. What was more was that Jewish prophecy stated that a particular tribe would bring forth the Messiah. That would be the tribe of Judah. The symbol of Judah was a lion associated with Leo in the sky. And so this starry coronation of Jupiter and Regulus... That triple conjunction occurred within that constellation of uh, the lion, Leo. And ancient stargazers, who might have been particularly interested in Jewish things, may well have concluded that they were seeing the sign of the birth of a new king. In fact, it's very possible that these magi were influenced by Daniel in the book of the Old Old Testament book uh, written by Daniel, who, by the way was the chief of the Magi in his lifetime. It's interesting, if you go to Daniel 5, we'll put it up on the screen. 600 years before the birth of Jesus, Daniel is described to the king of Babylon with these words. King, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, magi, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. That same night, the king of Babylon was slain by the king of Persia, by Darius, who entered Babylon and conquered it. The very next week, 
Darius looked at Daniel, and he says, Daniel, I have something special for you to do. In Daniel 6.3, it says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom over all of Persia. Interesting connection. Soon after this, the exiles, the Jewish people in exile, are sent back to the land, Ezra and Nehemiah, that whole story. Daniel doesn't go with them. He sticks around in Persia. He remains in Babylon, as does his influence and his writings. Babylon had one of the great libraries of the world. And as the Magi would have treasured this writing, along with the Jewish scriptures, they would have seen that in Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 6, Daniel compares the kings of Babylon, the kings of Persia, with one great king who will come. So they have that lodged in their thinking. In Daniel 7, he introduces this coming king as one who is like a son of man, coming from the throne room of heaven by the the side of the Ancient of Days into human history to set up his kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 9, he gives the exact timetable for his arrival. Isn't that amazing? All of that information in Daniel. And then Daniel writes his book in two languages. Chapters 1 through 7 are written in Aramaic, the language of the Persians and the Babylonians. Why? So they could see the kings who are compared to that one great king. And in Daniel chapters 8 through 12, he writes it in Hebrew. Why? So that the Jewish people could see the exact day when the Messiah would come. So these magi, who undoubtedly had this available to them, would have been able to realize that what's happening in the starry sky, what's happening in Judah, is more than just this kid being born. He's actually the king of kings and lord of lords, the one whose kingdom will never end. And there are Old Testament scriptures they could look at as well. So the Magi took all of this stellar activity, all the ancient history of of Daniel, and they concluded there's this king coming. His kingdom will be worldwide. It'll never end. He will come from heaven itself. He'll be born as a human, but he's going to be God. His birthplace is somewhere in Judea. The time for his birth is imminent. All nations, including their own, are going to be under his rule. And he's going to bring peace to the world and solve the world's problems. Amen. And so they decide, let's go worship him. Makes a lot of sense. Number two, they teach us that no one has ever any less of God than they want. No one ever has any less of God than they want. Look at verses 3 through 8. When Herod the king heard this, where's the one born king of the Jews? He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of his people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? He wants to know. He has ulterior motives. But they say to him, he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet in Micah, O you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them What time the star had appeared? How long ago was it that star showed up? How long have you been going through the desert? What time did it take to eventually get here? And then he sends them to Bethlehem. And notice what he says. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So when the Magi arrived in town, it was a thunderous 
cavalcade of magnificently dressed, opulently provisioned men. They were seeking an audience with the newborn king of the Jews. And, and we know that tradition suggests that there were three magi, right? So I brought the magi from my nativity set this morning. This is Caspar. These are the traditional names. Caspar, Melchior, and Bathazar. How many of you have three wise men in your nativity set? Okay, most of you do. Now, it's interesting. Why do we have three wise men? That's right, because there were three gifts given. But the Greek says that they gave out of their gifts. They didn't come with just three gifts. In fact, some theologians estimate, because there were a lot of magi in Persia at this time, they estimate there were as many as 70 magi who made the trip. I mean, who would want to be left out of this trip, right? The king of kings. Can you imagine having a nativity set with 70 magi? <laughs> kind of crowd, crowd everything else out, right? They arrive in Jerusalem, and they are instantly noticed and immediately understood. They are looking for a worship service. Where is the one born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. The only problem was there was already a king of the Jews on the throne in Jerusalem, and he was extremely jealous of crosstown worship services. <laughs> Herod had ruled Jerusalem for 35 years with an iron fist. This was a man, he was not Jewish, he was Edomite. He had been appointed king of the Jews by Rome because he supported Rome in the wars. And, and to stay in power over all of the years, listen to what he's done. He murdered his uncle, beheaded his mother-in-law, drowned his brother-in-law, executed his wife, and poisoned and slaughtered all but one of his sons, one by one. All because they posed a threat to his rule. This was not a great family to marry into. In fact, he wiped out anyone who posed any kind of threat to his kingdom and power. And you talk about stressed family get-togethers? <laughs> this is a guy who, when the Magi walked into town, he's 69 years old, and he is still very capable of treachery and murder. And that is why your texts say that Herod was upset and all Jerusalem with him. They got the heebie-jeebies. Oh, no, not another murder of Magi and a king. But I want to point out to you something this morning, and I hope you'll think about it. Herod is not the greatest tragedy. He is not the saddest reality here. What is the saddest reality is that you have a crowd of potential worshipers who are present here, and they did nothing. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? They knew Bethlehem of Judea. It is written there by the prophet. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel, the members of the Sanhedrin, many of them. We don't know how many. But the Old Testament prophecies were as familiar to them as chocolate chip cookie recipes was to a mom with cookie-loving kids. They knew. They knew their promised king would come and that these wise men were seeking him, and yet they didn't lift a finger or move a toe to go and meet and worship him. That's the tragedy. They didn't seek their own king. They knew it well enough, but they didn't act. Max Lucado in his book, Because of Bethlehem, and I hope if you're visiting with us today, you do grab your book by Max Lucado. He's a phenomenal author, page-turner. But he writes in this book, Noticeably absent from the manger were the scholars of the Torah. They reported to Herod the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but 
Did they read the prophecy? Yes. But did they respond to it? You'd think at a minimum, 30 of them would have accompanied the Magi to Bethlehem. The village was near enough. The risk was small enough. At worst, they would be out the effort. At best, they would see the fulfillment of prophecy, but the priests showed no interest. How could that be? But the reality, folks, is that that same response is possible today. We can be individuals who know about Jesus. We read the Bible. We even come to church. And, and we still can fail to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it can happen for a variety of reasons. I mean, it can be that we are afraid of the opinions of others who are not favorable toward Jesus. And if we express worship of him, we will be in, cast in a bad light. It might be that we're too comfortable with um, our lifestyle to engage in a determined pursuit that's going to disrupt it all. It could be perhaps that we're the ones on the throne of our lives and we don't want a new king coming in. And so like Herod, we push back. The fact is, everyone can have as much of God as they want. The question is, will they? Now notice Herod's response. On the face of it, he looks like an eager worshiper. Come and tell me so that I too may come and worship him. And he uses the very typical everyday standard word for for worship, proskuneo. Let me come and kiss toward him. Let me come and bow before him. Give him submissive honor. He uses the wording, and the Magi have no clue that he has anything other on his heart than singing, Our God is an awesome God with them as they walk to Bethlehem. He had no idea that his heart was full of fear and jealous rage and evil intent. All the external signs seem to indicate this is another worshiper of Jesus as well. But God knew his heart, and God knows our hearts as well when we come to worship. This is such a clear reminder that genuine worship, true worship of oneself and worship of God can be very similar in appearance. You've got Herod who looks like the worshiper. You've got the Magi who are. But the difference between them, both present and eternal, is a world of difference. It's the distance between heaven and hell, between transformation and calcification. So how do we tell the difference? Their last point to us. Finally, the Magi teach us that genuine worship always involves our feet, our hearts, our hands, and our heads. Look at verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him, opened their treasures, and out of them offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here's four aspects of worship we should take with us today. First of all, genuine worship involves our feet. We pursue God. We make it an obvious movement in his direction. It's interesting, Matthew, if, when you read the story of the Christmas in Matthew, he doesn't even... I hope you got that point. <laughs> I think that's my two-minute warning. You're not kidding. One-hour service, okay. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't even refer to the the shepherds of the manger. They're not in his story. Um, He gives more space to the magi 
than he does to the birth of Jesus. And it's because he sees them pursuing Jesus, much like Jesus pursued him when he was a tax collector and Jesus came and said, follow me. He loved that. So are you and I pursuing him in our lives? Number two, it involves our hearts. When they saw the the star again, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Look at that, exceedingly with great joy. The star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them till it stopped over over the place where the child was, a house. The Magi were engaged with their hearts. They were ready to worship. Number three, genuine worship involves our heads. Being humble before God about who we are because of who he is. And you see that in verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures. They offered him the gifts. Folks, this was no ornate palace. This was no turreted castle. This was no vaulted cathedral. It was this simple home, but they saw in it the eternal, wonderful Savior. And in the Greek, it says they hurled themselves down at his feet. It was not what we saw in the earlier bumper video of this gentle kneeling before him, and here's the gifts. They threw themselves down at his feet to worship him. Worship involves, and there's my timer. (laughs) We are serious about getting done, yes. But I don't want you to miss, miss these last two simple points. They freely admitted their place in his scheme of things, not theirs. True worship begins with, God, you are great, greater than me. And lastly, it involves giving uh, gifts with our hands, giving to God. They brought him valuable gifts out of their treasures. I don't know why they chose gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but the lesson they teach us is that worship cannot be done without giving of something giving of some aspect of sacrifice. David wrote in in 2 Samuel, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God anything that costs me nothing. And that's the attitude that these men brought. Genuine worship always costs us something. So here's the three points. Number one, Jesus is worthy of our worship as the future king whose rule will be global and eternal. Anyone can have as much of God as they desire, And lastly, genuine worship always involves our feet, our hearts, our hands, and our heads. So would you stand with me as we wrap this service up? And we're going to be singing We Three Kings. We're so glad you came this morning.